Welcome to the 6 Minute Abs podcast. My name is Abby, aka 6 Minute Abs, and I will be your host along this fitness and wellness journey. Join me as I share the ups and downs of my personal wellness ride and shed light on some exciting, adventurous, and at times outrageous health topics. The show does not intend to offer any medical advice. I only aim to provide entertainment and to inform. You should always consult a registered doctor before beginning any treatment or on any topic that concerns your physical and mental health and well-being. Furthermore, you will not achieve a full set of abs in six minutes. Believe me, I've tried. Hey everybody, it's me, 6 Minute Abs, and today we are going to be discussing something quite hot and heavy, actually, and I'm going to be discussing it with my dad, can you believe? (laughs) But nonetheless, I have decided to talk about the R word. And the R word in this context is going to be religion. So for a lot of people, this can be quite a sensitive topic. However, I thought the best person to talk to this about is my father because he was a priest, yet he is still relatively open-minded. So we can get all of the deep questions out of the way without anything being, you know, too awkward or anything like that. But nonetheless, say hi, Dad. Hello, Abs. Nice to speak to you. I wasn't... I'm no longer a priest. Is that what you were saying? Yeah. Well, you're wrong. I'm a priest for life. So I've just retired from the active priesthood. But lovely to be with you. Thank you for your six minutes abs. And then I can be part and parcel of sharing the R word with your listeners. Bless you. Bless you. Obviously, we end up with a bless you already. Jeej. <laughs> So for everyone who's listening, my mother's here in the background. So if you do hear little comments every now and again, we do have a backseat podcast interviewee. <laughs> okay, but so let's jump straight into this, Pops. Um, so now for a lot of people, um, they do kind of struggle with religion in, in the sense of the new kind of church that's out there. However, um, we're just going to talk about the acceptance of the church. We're going to talk about um, your journey as a priest and everything that goes along with it. Um, So let's just jump straight into things. So can you tell me a little bit about spiritual gifts people can receive? So do people always get the same spiritual gifts? What are spiritual gifts and how can someone find their spiritual gifts? Well, spiritual gifts are not only for one person. They are for the edification of the body that means for the body of the church for all the people around so gifts are given to each person according to their abilities and when you look at it there are two things that Paul he was one of the great apostles that shared in fact the spiritual gifts were set out in the book of Romans and there's seven basic gifts that he talks about and and those seven basic gifts that he talks about are prophecy serving teaching exhortation or encouragement giving leadership and mercy those were the traditional seven gifts that we really look at and so when we look at our categories as people you'll see that always everyone has one or other of those gifts there's a distinction between spiritual gifts and the fruits of the spirit so Paul talks about these gifts quite specifically some people seem to think in a charismatic way that a gift which is a charism from Greek word charism that in fact it's only relating to tongues or speaking in tongues um, or prophesying but Paul speaks very specifically in first of all in Romans and then in Corinthians that in fact these gifts are for all people for the edification of the body of Christ so that's how I understand those those gifts each person is given a gift according to their own abilities I remember a lady and it's quite amazing when you talk about the church in a modern era um, she was in fact filled with this gift of joy and so when one of the fruits of the spirit is joy peace kindness love when you see all of those attributes that flow from the spirit every time i saw her even when she was crying she was able to smile she had the most amazing face and so me who had been very traditional was able to see god at work in very many different people so spiritual gifts are for all people each one of us just has to identify what our gifts are Okay, so um, as a former priest or a priest for life, as you have now specified with me, uh, what would be the one thing that you would teach people if you were only allowed to teach one spiritual thing? 
and why? Well, I think one of the most important attributes in the whole of the word is love. And so that's embraced in many, not only in the gifts, but in fact to what God is. If we really had an appreciation, if I could only be limited to teaching one thing, I would teach that God is love. If we look at that whole understanding of God being love, we'd see that, in fact, in the first epistle of John, that the shortest less word or sentence in the New Testament, God is love. And if we look at it, God so loved the world that he gave us his only son, Jesus, that we may have life. And so love is the most important element. So many people forget about love. We are so greedy. We're so involved in the things that draw us away from the very attribute that God would like us to exercise, which is love, that we forget about the most important teaching of the Word of God. And so the teachings of the Word of God should be really premised on the concept of love. So I would teach love if you ask me what is the most important thing. Okay, so um, obviously the church has a, a few um, opinions about certain things within the world. What, as a preacher man, what are your views on secular things such as um, that the church would generally shun? So holidays like Halloween and things like that. Yeah, thanks Abigail. That's quite an interesting concept. Halloween is particularly one of the things that many people and especially fundamentalist people would say, forget about that, that's a thing of the devil. But in fact actually began with the church saying a hallowed evening when we looked at the remembrance of All Souls Day and All Saints Day, all of the people that were involved and we remember the faithful departed. And so there was a ritual in the church that used to envelop and embrace all of these things, even Christmas Day was a day that was embraced by the church on which Jesus wasn't necessarily born on the 25th of December. But we'd celebrate this, the celebration of that day of the birth of the incarnation on the 25th that we can all remember. So too many people get caught up with uh, the secular, but actually the church has embraced many of the secular issues to become more representative of who and what we are. So I don't find a difficulty with some of the things that the church found in the secular world, people would say they would shun if you were certain sects. Um, if there was divorce, for example, in, f in terms of in the old days, you couldn't even be um, married or come and receive communion if you were a divorcee. Today, the church is far more embracing. People, if you committed suicide, um, one of the secular gifts was the person wasn't even allowed to be buried in the the church grounds in the cemetery where the rest of the religious they had to be buried in a separate plot and I found that to be so painful because people in fact ignore the very premise of love and when you embrace people then you begin to see that in fact the church must be wider than all of the things around us not to become synchronistic which means embracing everything that the world gives but to actually try and see what God is giving in the world that would be for me how I would deal with the secular issues. So now talking about that with regards to the whole secular acceptance and shunning and all of those kind of things, religion today um, actually has quite a negative connotation. So where do you think the disconnect between the church and the people began to happen? I think that it's quite difficult to say that the church has a disconnect with the people. The church is still very embraced with all of the people and embracing people in the love of what God actually gives to people. But one of the th difficulties, if you ask me, that I think where the disconnect comes is from ritual. When people get caught up only in the ritual and in fact in all of the fancy dress that people get dressed up in, we in the Anglican church, we can dress up to the nines if you really like. I laughed when the hippie cult first came out. One hippie went into church and uh, he looked at one of the priests with all of his a bishop with his mitre on and his robes and all of the things and they were doing the sensing of the altar. So the hippie said to the bishop, Daddy, I dig your gear, but your purse is on fire. So <laughs> I used to laugh at that kind of thing. So very often we get caught up in the ritual instead of looking at what the ritual was intended for and that's the worship of God. And so what we need to be is more inclusive of people rather than exclusive and very often religion seeks to control rather than embrace. It should be inclusive of all people rather than exclusive and locking out certain kind of people. 
because of their color or their creed or their feeling or their aspirations. Religion, in the widest sense of the word, is there's so many people, there's no disconnect in religion. If you look at the wider context of um, religious peoples in the world, the Muslims, for example, go and do a uh, visit to Mecca. They, in fact, even now in the lockdown, are very, very um, distraught at the fact that they aren't able to go into their places of worship. The Christian churches embrace that by saying the church goes into the homes of all people at this particular time. So I don't think there's a disconnect so much as they're looking at a new reality and the reality that we actually embraced in at this particular time of our journey. And so there are many different factors in the past where the church was very emphatic in terms of like the persecutions that the church acted out, um, the Spanish Inquisition. If you didn't think like we think, you were doomed to, to death. If you don't think in terms of the ways that we constructed, if the, if the world wasn't made in seven days, you were a heretic. And so science today is starting to bend those barriers and then allowing people to be more inclusive and embraceive of what God's wonder of making and the church's role more than in fact being ritualistic and dogmatic should be flexible and incorporating all of the aspirations that science and the world in general and the world in which we live need to be embraced because God is in every single one of us and that's for me the most important aspect where God isn't in a disconnect God is in fact in a connect with you because God is in all matter he made all things at the first incarnation when he created the world and he's in you, Abby, he's in me, he's in these little dogs that I see around with us here, the boys. He's in each one of us, filling us with his presence. So that for me is not a disconnect, but a real connect with the spiritual. Are you tired of looking like a frump when heading off to the gym? Are you stopping traffic with your outfit on your morning jog for all the wrong reasons? If you, like me, are tired of recycling your old promo t-shirts as gym wear, you need to take a look at Athleisure HQ range. These guys stock everything your gym bunny heart could want or desire. From fantastic leggings, which literally feel like a second skin, and trust me, they really, really do, to amazing gym wear for him, you can find it all here. For all you South Africans out there, isn't it great to know that these products are locally manufactured in Cape Town? But if you're an overseas listener, don't stress. They can organize international shipping just for you. All the designs at Athleisure HQ are nature-inspired, leaving you feeling absolutely zen in your gear. I just picked up the Blossom Cropsy set, and my gosh, is it stunning. None of the garments have exposed elastic, which would leave your skin feeling irritated. In the same right, you won't have to worry about any irritating labels. All the usual label info is incorporated in the fabric. Furthermore, you can wash, wear and live in your garments without ever having to worry about them. You don't have to worry about them fading and you don't have to worry about them becoming washed out and dull. Go on, spoil yourself with these amazing products and get 10% off while doing so. Yep, you heard right. I managed to rustle up a code for all of my listeners to help you get the gear that's perfect for you. When you check out, use my code ABBI-A9F5KQ6G. That's ABBI-A9F5KQ6G. Once that's in, you basically all set. So now go on, get, go! Go spoil yourself and look amazing in the process. Okay, yeah, so it's quite interesting that you're talking about that because um, in terms of the church's ways of drawing the crowds, <laughs> it has always been a bit of a, a forceful way um, in old times. Not, not necessarily right now, but I mean, if you look back to Gothic architecture, they had the gargoyles on the church, which were saying to people, if you don't come to church, these guys are going to come and get you, you know. So they're going to swoop down from the church and come and take you to your watery hell. But yeah, that for me is just kind of interesting. Um, so would you say that now the church has moved into a more kind of accepting manner? Do you think that? Yes, I certainly think that the church of today is very different from the church in my grandfather's day. 
Our grandfather day was still the flattest. He believed that the earth was flat and that, in fact, God was in heaven above and the earth below, and that's the end of the story. There was no such thing as the universe as we would know it today. My father, who's, who just who went after him and preceded me, is the guy who believed still that unless you, um, you turn or burn, you must be saved. And if you're not saved, you're going to burn in hell. And so I think that the... The gargoyles that you talk about were the kind of things that made people fearful of religion, fearful of worshipping a God who loves them. And I think that you'll see the emphasis in the modern church is more inclusive and embraceive of saying, we love you, come and be part of us. We're part of a community, a faith community is what we call it, rather than in fact saying, um, we're going to force you to come to church. we like in the Spanish Inquisition, think like us, otherwise off with his head as the Queen would say. So for me, the church needs to be far more embracing. And I think that the modern church is starting to go that way. People are looked even at this lockdown situation of saying, you you are the church. Who is the church? Is the church the building? Or is the church the people? And it's the people of God that make up the church. It's not just God saying, these are the people around there. They are the people that become part of God as we believe that God is in us. So for me, the church is no longer looking at being frightening people into the kingdom of God, but embracing people in through a loving manner and relationship with God. Developing your personal relationship with your Savior and your salvation rests with that, that God loves you and includes you and embraces you as his child, rather than saying, if you don't come in, hellfire is waiting with its yawing more. Okay, yeah, so that's quite interesting in terms of you talking about the people. However, um, as a child of the church, I have found that the people can sometimes be the problem because um, a lot of Christians I have found, and I just need to preface this with for everyone listening, is I'm not trying to touch any nerves with religion. It's just my personal experience and what I have come across. And I found that a lot of people will sit in the church on a Sunday and that redeems them from everything that they do within their lives, you know. And my whole belief on that system is, you know, I can sit in the garage for a week, but I'm not going to turn into a car, you know. And that is a big problem that I have found is a lot of Christians can be quite self-righteous. Like, for example, there's one church in um, the South of America, which in the 90s was quite loud and active against the gay community. There was a horrific murder that happened, a hate crime murder that happened in the southern states. And people actually picketed outside the trial of, you know, this child's killers because he was killed because he was gay. And people, a church picketed outside the thing saying this boy is going to hell, even though he was horrifically murdered, you know, and he had what was coming for him. And I think that has actually been quite a huge issue that many people face with the church is not being accepted or not feeling accepted by the community because, you know, they have X amount of tattoos or they have a, a specific sexuality orientation or they're a certain color and the church doesn't really agree with that, which for me is quite ironic because like we've discussed, you know, if you could teach one thing as a preacher, you would teach love. And for me, that's what I believe the church should teach is love and acceptance. So, um, why do some churches shun communities such as the LGBTQ community? Well, I can't speak for all other churches because there's a very wide range of churches and beliefs. But I think one of the things with people, as you were saying, that's the, the great denominator. Some people are very narrow-minded. Some people are very judgmental. Some people are holier than thou and self-righteous, as you say. And those are the kind of things that lead people into homophobia. In fact, the Anglican Church is very broad and it incorporates, it's in fact the name of the Anglican Church is Via Media, which means the, the middle way. It embraces people in all their different understandings. And so a person who's in the LGBTQT community is a person that in fact is loved by Jesus just as much. He loves the sin and not what in fact in the old days we'd say the sin. But today, what is what is sin? And that's what we've got to look at. My relationship with God is the most important central feature. So if I'm sitting in that church judging the person at the trial and saying you're bound for hell because you don't think like I think is in fact a wrong teaching. 
The teaching should be inclusive of how the person and the circumstances of the modern era in which we live, the circumstances in which we live, all of these things dictate the circumstances in which we need to understand theology and religion. And in fact, in the Anglican Church, the three it's like a three-corner stool. We believe in the inerrant word of God, which is Holy Scripture. We believe at the same token that that is informed by tradition. That's the ritual that I was talking about. But the third leg, and this is the important leg that for me is important, is that it's actually informed by revelation, which means God's Holy Spirit. You spoke about the gifts of the Spirit at the beginning of this interview. And it's those gifts of the Spirit that become manifest now. How loving are we? Jesus said, love your enemies. Jesus said, I am love. God said, whoever believes in Jesus the Christ will be saved. So who's to sit in judgment? God is the only one who can judge. God says quite unequivocally, I will judge whom I will judge and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Not for you or for me to make that determination. The role of the church, the role of a believer is to help other believers, help other people to believe in the love that God has for each one of us rather than being excluding other people as being of a particular uh, disposition as you would say. Um, and so it's their own prejudices that come to the fore. At one time, in fact, you would see that the church worshipping community wouldn't even allow um, communities that were integrated. They had segregated communities, black and white separate, different churches or different people, and that was a, a heresy against the very creation that God had made because um, he's in all people, whether you're black, white, yellow, whatever it might be, God loves you. Whatever your disposition and your leaning towards is, God loves you. And we've got to be the point of connect for that person in their relationship with God and help them understand what is good for your fellow man rather than in fact being condemnatory and judgmental on other people. That's how I interpret it. And I think that the modern church is trying to override um, all of those previous sins almost of the church those heresies that the church was so willing to guard against were the very heresies that they were perpetuating because they failed to look at the love of God they failed to see the inclusiveness of a creator who is in every single element that he has made in fact some of the n new modern um, teachings like Richard Raw talks about the universal Christ that there's nobody that's excluded we are all that Christ is for the Muslim, for the Buddhist, for the Anglican, for every single person. There's an inclusivity rather than exclusivity. Even though Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but, my, but by me. And some people say, that's it. If you're not a Christian, you're gone. But God is inclusive and he says, I love you. And for me, that's how I understand his teaching and his word. Okay, so that's really, really interesting because, like, you make a mention of God and being the all-inclusive God. And back in his day, Jesus was actually quite a rock star, you know. This was the gent who was hanging out with the prostitutes and the lepers and the tax people. And, you know, to this day, <laughs> I don't think you'd see, like, um, you know, um, a highfalutin church individual going and having tea with Mary the prostitute. You know what I'm saying? So... Would you say that we need to be more like Jesus in the all-encompassing kind of love that he showed to his kind of followers? Yes, I agree with you completely. That's the kind of leaning that the church should be making and leaning towards. An inclusivity that actually says, and as you said, Jesus was the person. He didn't necessarily only hang out with the prostitutes and with the the the. the the Nicodemuses and the people that were the tax collectors and all the anathema of the people, but he didn't shun them. He embraced them and he said, come and be with me. And remember, even in terms of the sin of the people, when they wanted to stone the prostitute that was caught up and Jesus said to her, um, go and sin no more, after he'd asked all of the people around him to come and say, who is without sin? Let him cast the first stone. And I think that's really the inclusivity of what the, what Jesus' message was. He, were, he wasn't put off by the person because he loved the individual. He, wasn't, he still was a able to say to them, go and sin no more. 
but he, he knew that they, they needed to be included and embraced. I have a little bracelet that I've worn on my arm for years and years and years. And it's a simple little mnemonic, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And so whenever I want to get judgmental, and that's often because I'm that kind of person. But um, in terms of that, I've got to look at that little bracelet and say, what would Jesus do? He certainly wouldn't do what Errol is doing now. And so from that point of view, I have to understand that my, my, I'm limited in terms of my human kind of judgments and all of the things that I've got. But what would God do? I try and emulate my, my Lord. I try and follow in his footsteps. I'm not perfect by far by any means, but certainly the focus of my life must be that in fact Jesus for me is my salvation, he's my hope, he's the universal Christ and his love is embracing it sufficient enough for everybody to be inclusive in that regard. So that's how I understand it to be, rather than in fact um, the people that would be shunned by the modern era, the rock groups for example, you see how the church is slowly starting to embrace and even bringing into its, its repertoire uh, modern music, it's not only the hymns of the, the 15th and 16th century, yeah, like Hillsong, they reach thousands and thousands of people. So when you said, is the church relevant today? The church reaches a different way through a different culture. And the music is only an attribute of the culture in which we find ourselves. So it becomes an inclusive culture. So I find Hillsong for me, I often sit at night and listen to Hillsong until deep into the night because I love the words they talk to me. They can be very repetitive. Some people of the older tradition would say, how repetitive are these songs? And yet for me, the music is a vehicle. It's an icon to actually see God at work in us. And so... Music for me is a very important component of that. So yeah, we should not be shunning people by what they wear because fashion changes. We shouldn't be shunning people for what they say because even the, the nature of our communication changes. You look at this instant age now with computers, how we compute, how we ride across the world, which was impossible in the past. So there are new ways to reach the communities and if we don't, we shut ourselves out. And the, and the church needs to be inclusive of all of these things. So we need to be more like Jesus. If Jesus was here now, he'd be sitting behind his Apple laptop and saying, Hello, my followers. Here you are. Here's the latest message this morning, maybe. Um, I don't know, but I know that Jesus is omniscient and he's, he's omnipresent everywhere. But he's like that internet everywhere throughout the universe. He's the universal internet. And that's what Richard Raw talks about, the universal Christ available for everyone everywhere. Does that answer that? Okay, so now we're going to take things on to a little bit of a more personal level. And we're going to talk about the family aspect of the priesthood. So obviously, um, for anyone listening, I grew up in a priest home. Um, I did speak about this with my brother, Teacher Brian, in that interview that we did. We spoke about it very briefly. But yeah, so I was raised in the church community. And Popsy, so many people have a stigma surrounding a priest and their family. So most people I met when I was little, this is just like an example that I experienced. A lot of kids at school wouldn't believe that you were my dad because they didn't understand how a dad could be a priest, you know, because a lot of people think that priests are celibate. So have you struggled with the pressures and expectations that the community have with priests in your life? And have you felt the pressure ever to conform to these kinds of expectations? I think there's always a subtle pressure that's exerted upon the clergy and clergy children. So I'm sorry, my doll, that you were, as you grew up, that you had to be subjected to all this thing that to, by a celibate father. But that was a different teaching in the culture. In the Roman Catholic Church, you weren't allowed to get married. In the Anglican Church, we were already moved across that cultural divide, and in fact, you were able to have a family. In all of the new modern churches, you'd see people, a pastor of a church, um, would have a wife and children in the normal as any person in the world rather than in fact being set apart. Unfortunately, within the church, people do set people on a pedestal. And so that's one of the difficulties that you have to live up to. You always people having a look at you. I never forget when I was, my first curacy that I ever did was in Turfentain. And I went with my clergy collar and I went into the bar in the local Turfentain Hotel. And everybody was kind of shocked as they looked at, what's this Holy Father coming into the bar? And I chatted with them and I even ordered a beer 
and the eyes got bigger and bigger and I sat and chatted to a number of people and what it really meant is that there was an expectation that you would be different. When I come even now and people know I'm a priest, they suddenly stop swearing if they're telling a dirty joke and they're just all holier than now and that for me is a charade. And what we need to do is get to the authenticity of what the things, but I myself having said that, enter into this whole body of the church and I'm caught up in the whole ritualistic tradition of the church. Sometimes I balk against it and in my journey I've often wondered about the wearing of vestments. Are they even necessary? Because God didn't come dressed up like the Pope. He came in fact in, uh, with sandals walking through the desert. And so for what was good enough for Jesus would be good enough for me with my t-shirt and jeans. And so in my older age now, as I go through, I don't necessarily parade around in my um, clergy collar since I've retired um, even less so, maybe on high, <coughs> high days and holidays. So I think that part of, for me, the difficulty is to conform. There's an expectation that as a priest, you will conform to a certain way of behaving, a certain way of believing a certain way of doing things and there's a lot of truth in that when I spoke to you about the three legs of that stool one of them is tradition so within the Anglican tradition I've embraced that tradition and I've been able to work within the tradition but beyond the tradition to what God is really calling us to is the love of the individual rather than the exclusion and so it's for the good of the community that I look at and so as a priest part of my role would not to be informed and by the clergy or the little old woman who's so narrow-minded sitting in the front row, oh, Father, you didn't say the collect by the, the comma that was supposed to be over there or whatever it might be, and trying to hold one to a tradition of the 16th century prayer book um, rather than actually looking at what God is saying in a more inclusive way and saying, I love you, my child. So that's my simplistic, after all my heavy books of theology that sit gathering dust on the shelves, it's the application of practice, which in fact becomes for me the most important thing that I would see. And within that is how do I understand my own relationship as a priest to the people. And as a leader, one of the spiritual gifts when we spoke about was to try and guide and help people. So help them to a different understanding of where they could be in their walk with God. That for me is the paramount thing because at the end of the day, the reality of the matter is, what is my personal relationship with my Savior? How am I linked to God rather than how am I conforming to the expectations of the world around me? Okay, so that's really interesting. So I've got a question um, relating to the Roman Catholic Church practice of celibacy and their preachers. So you, for, for... you know, interest sake for everyone who doesn't know, my dad was actually a lawyer before he got the call to be a priest and he already had a family. So he was married to my mom and he had my brothers. I was a later addition in the world. But um, yeah, so you already had an established family. Could something like that happen to a Catholic priest? So could they have established a family and then get a calling and then go into the priesthood? Would they have to get a divorce or what's the deal there? I can't speak for the the Catholic Church, but I know certainly that is correct. Um, I used to do the law of the land, and then I did the law of the Lord. And the two are not exclusive, but inclusive. And so for Catholic, I've known of a person who was in the church, an Anglican priest, who was already priested in the Anglican Church, and then moved to Catholicism. And they in, allowed him to continue being a priest, within the Catholic Church because he'd already had his holy orders done in the Anglican Church. So he was already married. And so they had, he didn't have to divorce his wife or excommunicate his children or do anything of that nature. He was still a priest in that respect. So I personally f- think that for the Roman Catholic Church, that's a uh, battle that they still have to embrace. That's something that they still got to, in fact, deal with the issues of what celibacy means. Being celibate is rather being celibate for God rather than in fact being celibate in regard to your actual manhood or your masculinity. And so I think that's where so many people get it wrong and we often see the aberrations of the abuse that has happened because of that kind of constriction that we see paedophilia and we see all of the different kind of things that have been rampant in different churches and especially those that don't have 
um, the ability to have the transgender, the the willingness of male and female within the church. Because if you go back to the very beginning of Genesis, when God created humankind, male and female created he them. So the image of God is both male and female, not just the male exclusive priesthood. And so from me, that's what I first, my tradition was always that uh, the Bible never made mention of women being allowed to be priests. But in fact, when you start reading the wider understanding of God, it needs to be inclusive. So the Roman Catholic Church still has a long way to journey. I think that they are in, engaging with those issues at this point in time. But I know of one person who was in this Germiston area who had become uh, a Roman Catholic priest. So, yeah, that's a journey that they still have to walk and a long path ahead of them that they have to go down. All right. Okay. So, um, what would you say has been your biggest challenge that you have faced as a priest? Well, as I mentioned to you earlier, um, maybe one of the biggest challenges that I have is the expectations that other people have of me. I am, like you, a person who's journeying towards what I would hope would be wholeness in my life, for a fullness of the realization of the Christ particle within me becoming realized so that when I die and when as I get older now and at 74 I'm beginning to realize that I'm in not only in God's waiting room but I'm beyond my three score and ten so I am very conscious of the fact that what I do needs to be done for a purpose not only for what I've lived my life and was the relevance in my life but what is my life in terms of all eternity and so there's a there's a eternal and universal truth that we all aspire to. So the diff most difficult thing that I've had to encounter is people's expectations that you would know all the answers. You wrestle with them sometimes when somebody dies unexpectedly and a, a child, especially a newborn child, dies and you have no words and no answer and the only thing that you can do and it is to embrace them in your love, to cry with them when they cry, to be human in terms of our human journey. And I think that's what God calls me to be rather the genuine person than, in fact, the person that I'm supposed to be according to the, the textbooks. I'm to be compassionate as Jesus was compassionate. He embraced, as you were talking about, the different kind of people that he hang out with um, or hung out with, as you would say. He was inclusive in that regard and loved them. He wept. Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus died and he saw the sisters weeping. Jesus wept is the shortest word in the New Testament, shortest sentence. God is love is the next shortest sentence. And those two together shows the humanness of what God has actually done. He's entered into our circumstances. He understands our dispositions. He understands our brokennesses. He understands all of the things. And I find that very often the church community is less understanding of those inclusivities that Jesus has for us. They'd rather be judgmental and say you've got to be on a pedestal, elected and stand on a pedestal and be different all the time. I am different because I wear this little bracelet. I'm different because what's in my heart. I'm different because my, my Savior loves me as I am, cast in his image and in his likeness. So that's how I understand my biggest challenge. Okay. Now that's quite interesting. So obviously there's challenges that come with being in the priesthood. However, there must also be rewards. So what for you, it all, is the most rewarding thing about the priesthood? I think the most rewarding thing for me is looking at relationships. In my family, it's the first primary relationship that I have with my wife, Gailey. That would be for me the most important relationship that I've ever been able to forge. With that flows the relationship of our kids. And every morning as we lie in bed, we pray for our children and our grandchildren and for our wider family. So God has given me a family directly in my, in my immediate circle of um, exposure. But then the church, the greatest joy that I've had is in all the many congregations that I've served. I've seen when I've entered into communities, very often people want you to take a position and say, you're with us or against us, you know, this faction or that faction. And I'm very quick to try and put that down, to try and say that we are all people. We're all sinners and we're all saints and we all sit together on the same benches. 
and within that becomes the inclusivity. And so for me, the relationships that I've experienced and encountered are the most rewarding parts of my ministry. The times when we've helped people through difficulties, where people have been subjected to terrible hardships, death in the family, which is so unexpected, cancers that come and that we can't change or vary. Those are the kind of issues that we've got to look at and try and say. And those have been, for me, the most fulfilling in my journey when we've helped a person through a very deep hole into an understanding of God's grace and God's love and God's mercy. Some of those things that we talked about in the Spirit, um, the gifts of the Spirit, was for the miracles of looking at and understanding what love, joy and peace and patience means in the circumstances of our lives. And so often they are so absent. There's no kindness or goodness. And yet for me the kindness and the goodness I've seen of people who've got nothing, like the widow's might, are able still to share and give to others. And it's that gentleness of some of the people that I've encountered in God's kingdom, in the churches and the congregations that I've served, that in fact makes me humbled. And I'm humbled as a priest to know that there are so many good people who evidence all the fruits of the Spirit in their daily lives. And those are the things that are rich and rewarding. In this COVID-19, the lockdown, see how many people are embracing people that don't have food. Our people reach out and now the church is making it one of their missions to try and feed people who are without anything. And so often we're caught up in our own greed and our own need rather than looking out to saying, what are the people around us and what are their expectations? Okay, so a, a big problem that a lot of secular people face with the Christian community is that Christians can be relatively evangelical. So now I myself, um, I am a Christian, all right? But that's not me. I'm not the kind of person who's going to be like, go out and testify to everybody in the world. You know, I'm just not, I'm not that kind of person. And if someone comes into my space and is like beating me with a Bible and saying, ye shall believe, I don't respond well to that kind of thing. So the evangelical practice kind of, it kind of works for some people. For others, it's a, it's a gray area. For me, it's an absolute no-no because that's just not how I am. Um, so do you think there's a different way that Christians could spread the message? Like for me, the best thing that a Christian could do is to live by example, you know, be the life that other people would want to lead, you know, have the reward that other people want to have. Would you say that's kind of evangelical in its own right? Like a little kind of living evangelically, living evangelically doesn't mean you have to be standing with a loud halo on your soapbox, right? I don't think we all call to stand at the corner on a soapbox and shout out the odds. And um, there's horses for courses. And so some people would find that for them that's very necessary. They might have never heard the word that somebody not stood on a soapbox and said, um, the kind of message that my father heard a long time, turn or burn. You know, so many people came into the kingdom through evangelicals and through evangelical ministry and outreach. They were challenged to say, have you sinned? And none of us is without sin. So there's a role for everything. So there's horses for courses. But I loved one of the sayings, and I'm trying to think who said it. But he said, go out and preach the gospel and use words if you have to. So it was Francis of Assisi, my dear wife, has helped me out in that regard. So that's lovely. Francis of Assisi, go out and preach the gospel and use words if necessary or if you have to. And so it's by your example, as you were saying, you need to live that Christian life. And so often I fall short of that. So, but what we should really do is, by my example, other people should be wanting to come into the kingdom of God. Rather than me saying, you shall do X, Y, and Z. Um, people need to see rather your own deeds as opposed to your words because so many words are shallow. And the example that I would give you so often is a person who says, you've got to go to church, now it's Sunday morning, and the father takes the kid and sends him off to Sunday school and sits in the, the car reading the Sunday Times. So that's the, the kind of thing, don't do as I do, but do as I say. And so I think that's the, the sad part of it. So I really believe that. The evangelism, there's a role for it, there's a time and a need for it, 
um, but that we all do it in different ways. And we just need to be not imposing and being in your face, as you say, but seeing what your circumstances and needs are. But also not avoiding the challenges of saying when you say there is no God, that you would be able to say to that, that's evangelism as you talk to the person. Sometimes it doesn't have to be on the soapbox, but in the quietness of your study and your living room that you'd be able to say to the person, my goodness, I see that you're wrestling like me in these kind of issues. This is the way I've understood it. And maybe that could be more helpful than in fact a hard shouting evangelical. Okay. Yeah, I must say, Pops, that's the one thing that I found I respected a lot about you as a priest and a father is the sense that you, you kind of, you made sure I was baptized. You made sure that I was, what's the one when you six confirmed? Yeah, you made sure I was confirmed and then you just left me and you were like, okay, find your own way. You know, you never kind of bashed down my door and said, come, we're going to church now. It's Sunday. Get ready. Yeah. You know, you did request that I didn't wear short shorts to church, which... Yes, in all honesty, yes, that's good. But I really respected that about you. So in your opinion, do you think that evangelism is necessary? Yes, just as I said to you, um, I think that if you deny your God, that's evangelism. Like, for example, somebody asks you a question, is there a God? You need to actually tell the person, and that's evangelism. But it's the mode and the method of evangelism that you'd say. Jesus said, go out and make disciples of all people. He didn't say how you're going to have to do it. He didn't say how, you, and exactly that story that I told you about, go and preach the gospel and use words if necessary. So your example needs to be permeated throughout life. So I would go through life sharing with other people, wow, what you're doing now, is that really helpful or harmful? Is that for your eternal journey? Is that part and parcel of where you want to be one day? Have you ever thought about that you've got an accounting of what your journey has been. And so if you just avoid all of those things, then you're being a, a cushion Christian, sitting at home, not wanting to be exposed. And the only way that the, the, the gospel was spread was when the disciples went out into all the world. They were evangelists of note. They, were, they started churches, they, sh they shared the Paul, the Apostle Paul, when we're talking about these charisms and gifts that you spoke when, when we began, was the one who went out actively creating and forming churches. And so I think that we have an obligation to make um, the Word of God known. And the way that we do it is each according to your own specific ability, but not according to um, the dictates and rituals that so many people want to force down other people's throats, but rather to be inclusive and in saying, God loves you. Come and let me help you understand that if you'd like to. So that's my understanding. So there is a room for evangelism. Um, there's a room for evangelists, but not for me. Okay. All right. Okay, so what is your view on the Bible? Now that we're talking about evangelism and all of these good Christian things, what do you see the Bible as? Like, do you see it as a legit word-for-word -word law? Or do you view it more as like a moral compass on how to live your life? Well, if we did it as a legit word-for-word -word law, then there's many things that for me um, are a bit discordant. And if you look at the very beginning of Genesis, Genesis for me is a myth to tell the truth. And the truth is that God loves you. The world certainly wasn't created in seven actual days. And if you speak to a fundamentalist who says that, he'll say the world's created in seven days, dub, 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 six days and the seventh day to rest. Um, if you look at each of those days, is for eons and eons of time. The creation of the whole of the universe is something like 13.6 billion years. The creation of the earth is about 3.8 billion years. And so when you look at that kind of situation of saying, that there's going to be, um, you know, that a word for word, that that old person who first wrote the, the Bible 1,000 or 3,400 years ago knew every single under, understanding of the universe so to be beyond the person's comprehension. So I don't, I'm not a literalist. I believe that the word of God is there sufficient contained in the word of God for your salvation. That's for me is the most important part of the scriptures. The scriptures incorporated, there was a canon, there were different councils of the church. The council of Carthage finalized the canon of the church, and the canon of the church was the books of the church. 
And so, for example, the books of the church would include, um, in some people, like the Greek Orthodox and the Roman Catholic, would be the books of the Apocrypha. And um, those would be, whereas in some of the other churches, that was excluded. Those are the kind of things that man-made <coughs> rules, excuse me, um, came into being and tried to set the tone for what would have to be included in Scripture. And I think that was very important because within that canon of Scripture, there is sufficient contained therein for your, um, con for your conviction to faith, to understanding and for belief. And so for me, it's the inerrant word of God in that sense that it's God-inspired and that those are the words that enable us to understand the truths that God would share with us in our human journey. But they don't become the ritualistic mantra that some people would like to say, um, you have to do one, two, and three. And if you went to that and went through all the laws in Exodus and Leviticus, you'd actually cringe because there was a law for every single day of the, the week if you were a Jewish person. And to live by the law, you'd be judged by the law. And Jesus came to give grace and truth. And so that's what the New Testament teaches more importantly than literalistically every single word, that God is love. And that in that process, he brings us to an understanding of his presence at work in our lives. Okay, so you basically answered my next question as well. Because for me, one of my biggest qualms with the Bible is who decided on it? You know, was it spiritually, you know, guided people who got the the notion to, okay, I need to include this book and this book and this book. But like you spoke about the Apocrypha, that is so fascinating to me because who deemed those books as unnecessary? You know, who are we to say that those books are poo-pooed, you know, and not okay to be in the Bible? But yes, yeah, so you did touch on that and you wrapped that up quite nicely, which I enjoy. So thank you for that. But now as a priest, what is your favorite passage of the Bible and why? Yeah, you know, as when I mentioned that, in fact, we all wrestled with the issues um, and the church fathers wrestled with what was going to be incorporated into Holy Scripture and the canon of Scripture. And that's where the Nicene Creed came from, that people sat together and just came to an understanding of what should be contained in the Bible. But for me, the most important words in the Bible is one little passage that I learned at, nurse, at Sunday school. And that was John 3.16. And everybody, I'm sure, has gone to Sunday school and knows John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. And that for me says it all. God in this infinite universe and this huge creation and the wonder of all creation says that he loves the world. For God so loved the world, he didn't say, I loved only Abby or only loved Errol or only loved... Um, X, Y, and Z. He loved everybody, inclusive the sinner and the saint, the people that we've been talking about, all the different kind of categories of people that we'd see. He loves the sinner as much as he loves the saint, and that's almost un un unintelligible to me. And what is the thing that that person has the right to salvation? The same as that thief on the cross, that was Jesus as he was being crucified. Jesus turns to the sin, the one sin and says this day you will be with me in paradise and for me that sums it up if you believe for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him in his son Jesus will have life eternal so for me that's my Sunday school best one and it's the one that I live with it's the mantra for my life that God loves me broken as I am God loves me and because I believe in him with all my imperfections there's a place for me in his kingdom so that for me is wraps it up. Thanks, Abs. Okay, so that was religion in a nutshell with my pops. And <laughs> yeah, we touched on a few very deep topics. We touched on a few lighter ones. But for everybody who doesn't know, my daddy isn't only a lawyer and a priest man. He's also an author. And he actually has two amazing books out that you can pick up on Amazon. You can get them on Kindle or you can get the ebook version or you can get the paperback version on Amazon. So, Pops, what are those books? Tell us a little bit about those. Okay, the, I used to f be fascinated and still am fascinated with the Shroud of Turin. And the first book that I ever wrote was, in fact, my questing after the understanding of what the Shroud of Turin might be. And I wrote a, uh, a book called The Turin Conundrum. And it was a Skopskitten Donner, <laughs> a real novel around some of the central truths. 
and I enjoyed writing that because I had to deal in with the issues that related. Was it genuine? Is the Shroud of Turin really genuine? And I still, at this point in time in my life, am wrestling. Is that still the genuine Shroud that in which Jesus was enshrouded at his burial? In fact, I'm writing a sequel to that book now, and it's going to be called uh, The Shroud of Turin Continued, and it'll be called The Fifth Element. And so that's what I'm busy writing in this lockdown. I'm enjoying the uh, the, the the joy of just entering into the word of my imagination. So that's the first book that I wrote. Um, it leaves one with a, a sense of what would be. It's almost heretical. I had to run it past two bishops before I decided that we were going to publish it to make sure that they weren't going to put me in the, uh, the sin bin for having written a book that deems or looks into issues that in fact other people would avoid like the plague. The second book I wrote was in fact something of my adventurous lifestyle and that was called All That Litters. It was about the gold industry. I'd been a consultant to people in the gold industry and I'd seen all of the uh, things that take place in that should and shouldn't take place within the gold industry and so I wrote a a book, uh, a yarn, because when I was young and I went through um, my journeys, I stopped over in the DRC, and which today is still a mixed up area. And then there was that whole war that took place in the, the DRC and uh, the, the massacre of so many people. And so when I looked at that, I wrote a story about the people that were fleeing from the, the refugees. So I loved that. It was just a, a story that I wrote and trying to make an, a statement that it's not only about the need for greed, but the need for understanding and actually having dignity. And that's what I try to Im incorporate. One of the things in the books that you'll read, I try not to swear, so <laughs> which would make it the characters and maybe a little bit implausible sometimes. But there they go. So that's what I've enjoyed. Thank you. Okay, so you heard it here first. There's a, a sequel coming out to um, the Turin Conundrum. That's quite exciting. I didn't even know that, so <laughs> hello. But yeah, so if you guys want to grab my dad's books, like I said, they're on Amazon. Um, if you want to just hear his ramblings during the week, not ramblings, they're intelligent ramblings, actually. He's got a blog as well, which is ebdangler.com. And yeah, that's he's got a section on the blog called The Word and the Law. So Pops, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Thank you. Yeah, Abigail, the word and the law for me is one of the areas when we're talking about being relevant to the community. I believe that there's a place for science in religion and too often the church uh, neglected to incorporate the aspects of science. And so when we look at the, the issues of how the world was formed, I'm a, I have a, had a little farm and on that there was the, the cradle of mankind. And in the cradle of humankind was the fossil record. And I became fascinated with the paleontological record. And so with that, I've written a thing, the word and the Lord and, I, and the law. I first of all did an expose of Genesis, just the first chapter of Genesis, the creation account. And on that was trying to understand the laws of science and the laws of God. How they sit side by side and how they actually help and embellish one another rather than actually contradict the different things that are taking place. So for me, the word and the law become inclusive. In fact, we were talking about a religion that was something that we need to um, be more exposed to, the word and the law. And so I've, I've loved that. I've continued now into the second part of that, the word and the law, in understanding the prologue of the Gospel of John. Because in the Gospel of John is the one book and the one gospel that I love with a great passion. And it's a great act of, in the beginning, God spoke creation into being. And in the Gospel of John, God speaks salvation into being. And so for me, those are fascinating. And I'm dealing with it at this very moment. I'm still writing every week a blog that comes out in our church magazine or in our church um, issue. And so I love that sharing of that word. So it's trying me in my humble way to look at what science means and what the law of the word of God means. So yeah, I try and embrace those two together. Thanks, Abs. Okay, so this has been a wonderful little potty with my dad. And yeah, I hope you guys have enjoyed it. I hope I haven't horrifically offended anybody. 
but you know if I have I am sorry it wasn't my intention <laughs> but if you want to catch up with my dad in the week go check out his blog which is ebdengler.com if you want to hang out with me in the week you can find me on Instagram which is six underscore minute underscore abs you can hit me up on Twitter which is six minute abs you can go to my blog which is six or you can just take a listen to the rest of the podcast episodes guys you can find me on uh, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Give me a rating that really helps me. But yeah, I hope everyone's got a good week ahead and bye. <laughs>